So this is the 80s. It was a free-for-all for concepts. When your guard is down, that. Very impressive gore. I just think they're hilarious. It's showtime. 80s horror was honest. Most horrifying things that I'd ever seen. Terrific. It felt like a simpler time. Good and evil, right and wrong. Hello and welcome to the Matt's Movie Reviews Podcast. I'm your host, Matthew Pekovich, and this is episode number 256. Available now for pre-order on Blu-ray and DVD, and also appearing as part of the 2019 Monster Fest that is currently touring across Australia, is In Search of Darkness, the ultimate documentary on 1980s horror films that takes an uncompromising deep dive into the decade that pushed the horror genre into innovative boundary-pushing heights, and transform the movie industry while doing so. Joining me now to talk about In Search of Darkness is the film's director, David Weiner. David, I thank you very much for joining me on the Matt's Movie Reviews podcast. Pleasure to be with you, Matt. Thanks for having me on. So, just reading up a bit about the making of this film and the origins of the movie is really interesting. Um, Your film's producer, Robin Block, he was working on another similar documentary about action films and that's when he came up with the idea about 80s horror movies how did you get involved with the project and take on the reins of director of what is really is a massive undertaking it quite it is quite the undertaking uh but we never necessarily understood how much of an undertaking it would be until we really got going um Robin Robin was uh, producing In Search of the Last Action Heroes and he came up with that idea to uh, take a, 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 tri- a nostalgia trip down memory lane of uh, the entire decade of the 80s because we you know he realized that there is a uh, there oh, there are many films about many documentaries about 80s horror films but nothing that's a, a survey that focuses solely on that decade uh, there's history there's wonderful histories of horror that are out there uh, uh, there's wonderful movies that take, you know, take anywhere between four and six hours to, uh, dive into the details of Nightmare on Elm Street and Friday the 13th. Uh, those are wonderful documentaries. Uh, but, uh, this was, a, a, a an opportunity to really, you know, take into account a lot of the, not only the really well-known films, but all the ones that are a little more arcane or eccentric or straight to video that, that exploded, in that decade. So I came on uh, due to a friend of mine who was a producer on there, Jessica Dwyer. Uh, she's a she's a writer as well, a uh, entertainment journalist and a horror journalist. And uh, she's a friend of mine. When I was the executive editor of Famous Monsters of Filmland magazine, I met her when we were on the set of The Conjuring 2. And um, I, I hired her to write for uh, for me, uh, you know, write some stuff. And she's she's got a great insight and great personality and so i was taking a walk one day and she said hey listen there's this other movie that i'm working on it's 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 something that you definitely should talk to robin block about and so uh long story long long story short i talked to robin and i said you know this sounds really cool you've got an amazing trailer you've got wonderful artwork you've already attached some pretty cool names on here you know what can i do uh what can i offer you 
And uh, I came on as an advisor. But uh, my background is uh, I worked at Entertainment Tonight for 13 years and then before I was with Famous Monsters. And I do a lot of sit-down interviews with, with filmmakers and stars and actors and uh, uh, tastemakers and so on and so forth. And uh, that's really my forte. That's something that I really love. And uh, I offered up my services to do that. And uh, he offered me this this incredible incredible you know silver platter opportunity you just um mentioned before that there were some things already in place some names you have the idea of course you come in there with a passion for the genre and in the background as an interviewer as well i'm curious though when it comes to the concept of the film not only delving into the themes of that era but what's really cool about in search of darkness is that it's almost kind of like an encyclopedic kind of documentary in, in that you delve into specific films per year through that decade. How, 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 how far into it was that concept ready to go? Or was that something that you brought to the table? Uh, Robin wanted to do a, a survey of the entire decade going year by year. And I thought that was a real fun idea, but I also felt like uh, there, there are pitfalls to that. Uh, because you can't cover everything. There was such an there was just a, a incredible output that decade. Um, and the pitfalls are, I think it, it could potentially get repetitive. I think you also, when you're focusing on movie by movie by movie, you might not be able to tackle the larger themes in context. So what I, what I did was uh, I inserted in between each year uh, a look at various aspects of that decade, whether it was the filmmaking aspects of it or the sociopolitical, uh, the VHS and the cable revolution, 3D, heroes, villains, the final girl, fandom. Uh, I felt all those things, we'd be remiss if we didn't touch on that. And and I sort of thought that uh, the only way we could do that is uh, interspersed in between each timeline year. And of course, that's where we got into our our initial conundrum of this is getting longer and longer and longer mm. and it's still only scratching the surface um and we decided to pretty much put in anywhere between five and ten films per year and then in between we would put those sort of subsection chapters that uh to me i think really are are, are crucial to provide a, a a proper historical overview uh, of that decade and, and its place and where the horror was a response to what was going on to that decade um, and and an influence to the filmmakers themselves wanting to one-up each other or compete or emulate each other. Uh, the inspiration was clearly there. And, uh, you know, uh, building everything from building franchises and horror icons to stretching the limits of the genre because the slasher genre could take things only so far, so you had to get more imaginative uh, and tackle more sub subgenres, whether it's body horror or the supernatural, you know, um, it, it was just a blank canvas for the creativity uh, and the opportunity for filmmakers to go with straight to video. They could do anything they wanted with a, a new distribution avenue. Um, so, what did I bring to the table? I think I brought. Uh, uh, a, a complementary enthusiasm uh, for this genre, having grown up in that time. I mean, I, I, I was a video store clerk. Um, you know, I, 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 was, I, I watched these movies uh, first run in the movie theaters and in, in the, the basements of uh, my friend's house. And, 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 you know, I never had cable TV, but my friends did. So I'd selectively say, oh, Friday the 13th is playing at 2 in the morning. 
you know, on Saturday night, I think I'm going to go to my friend Sergio's house because he's got cable in his room. And guess what? We're going to wake up at two in the morning to watch that. And I was way too young and it made an amazing impression on me. But uh, I think very much informs what uh, I was able to do with this because on top of tackling a a huge broad range of of material with the the people who were there and the people commenting not only on their own films but the films that they love too uh, i got to really insert a lot of my nostalgic insight having been there to speak to the people who were there themselves and appreciated all of it that was going on for someone like myself who grew up in the 80s watched a lot of the movies that was mentioned in the in, in in the documentary it was really fun to pick up new recommendations. There are films in there that I hadn't seen before, and I was actually jotting down a list of movies I want to watch after when, during watching your movie. Um, I'm curious, though, when it comes to choosing which films you were going to highlight, how does that come across? Is it a uh, decision by committee? Is there films that weren't on the table that you said, wait a minute, we need to talk about this movie as well? How did that all kind of work out? I would say yes. <laughs> all of the above. Um, it wasn't essentially, it wasn't really a film cut by committee. I, I would say that, um, it's, 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 it was kind of an organic process. You know, part of it had to do with the type the talent that we got, uh, and what they had been in. And I think that helped make sure that that helped ensure certain films like say stepfather two with Caroline Williams would not be forgotten because like the stepfather franchise, we didn't have time to do one and two, but I could do two in an all-encompassing, hey, remember how cool Stepfather was? And here was my, you know, what I did in Stepfather 2. Um, I think you, I, I, I had a good read on the horror community and the types of things that they were really enthusiastic about and the types of uh, the less popular films that people would champion. And uh, I would talk to, we, we have, what, what was really cool about our, company is we it's called creator vc that robin created is uh he assembled uh an advisor group and that's what i was on originally uh where you sort of bounce around ideas and you say you know let's put together a list of the, the most popular films and the most obscure films and the most eccentric films and the most beloved films and the forgotten films and the most popular ones um, and it's really a process of being able to sort of distill what was available, who had seen these things, who could talk about them, who was in it, and ultimately how much can we fit and how much material is robust enough to include, you know, when we're already going past four hours and, and steaming past five. I mean, I, 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 I delivered a five-hour cut, and uh, pretty much the reason why we had to scale back was, we, you know, manufacturing purposes. We, we had to weigh whether or not we'd do a one disc or a two disc set you know what did the backers want you know will this will people want to sit through uh, a movie this long you know can on a dual layer disc you know a blu-ray can you fit a five-hour movie not you actually can't so uh, lots of lots of uh specifics came into play but in terms of the actual movie choices uh fundamentally i wanted the really popular ones and i wanted the really eccentric ones and i wanted the ones in between and i wanted the ones that were big theatrical hits i want wanted the you know box office misses and i wanted straight to video favorites and uh uh lastly i'll say about it is that i again i said this this film only scratches the surface there's so much 
to be covered, and you can't do it all. So I made a very difficult but conscious choice to focus only on American films. And uh, I also made sure that within each year, uh, even though we're only going to do a, uh, a small survey of, of, of films that we focus on, uh, at least, at the very least, I could, I could put a wall of, of posters of every film that came out that year to, to at least indicate to the viewer that we know that these movies are out there and that they exist. And perhaps one day we'll be able to zoom in on those. What I really love about the documentary is that it kind of delves in all facets of the genre and of that decade. And I think one of my favorite parts of 80s horror movies is the creature and makeup effects. And throughout the film, we hear the names Tom Savini, um, Rob Bowden, uh, Rick Baker, Stan Winston. You know, this was a genre that was innovative for its creation of of imaginary fil- of filmmaking. It brought the, imag- the imaginary to life. And I think when looking back at the work that these names did and other names as well throughout the genre. Is there any doubt, David, that this film genre, this red-headed stepchild of a film genre, um, really did change the movie industry as a whole? I think uh, it really did, uh, at least from, from the, the special makeup effects standpoint. Um, American Werewolf in London was the first uh, film Brick Baker was the first uh, special makeup effects artist to win an Oscar that was specially created uh, for that uh, category, and American Werewolf, you know, was nominated and won. I think that that speaks volumes of the attention and respect that it got in the '80s. It was also a time where. Uh, you know, Tom Savini's background, for example, is, uh, you know, in, in Vietnam, he saw some really, really uh, horrifying stuff. Uh, and that very much uh, educated and informed and created the template in his brain for extremely realistic makeup effects. You know, you look at Maniac and you look at these scalpings, and Maniac is a hard film to watch uh, because it's so realistic. Um, but I, I think a lot of these, these folks, whether it was, you know, Rob Bottin doing very specifically like the howling and the thing, people would look at these things alongside Rick Baker and Tom Savini and everyone else. Uh, they would see, they would see the bar was raising with every single film. It was getting higher and higher and higher. And everyone said, look what they did. I want to do that too. So, you, you know, it almost culminates in, you look at like reanimator and from beyond, as uh, Stuart Gordon's films, as these these uh, almost pinnacles of of uh, you know plastic and latex and blood and caro syrup, uh, it, it's exciting to see. Um, but it's also interesting to see, like you look at Sam Raimi's films, um, it can it can easily go over the top, but in the right context, it's hilarious. It's not over the top gross. It's over the top fun depending on who are watching it. And so I think uh, people use these, these, these advances in the, in, the, in the practical effects technology really to uh, expand their storytelling, uh, and there are only no limits on the creativity of what you can put on screen. I grew up in... And, and, Sorry, go ahead. I'll just, I'll just addend one more thing. And that's uh, uh, people from other genres, you know, while they might not be emulating, they were looking at this and they were looking at what was, poss- what was possible. Yep. And uh, it very much seeped into every genre beyond the horror genre because of what, what they established in the 80s. 
I argue that a lot of the things that are happening now in the superhero movie genre, for example, definitely had uh, influence from what was happening, especially from a special effects and creature effects impact from horror films. Very much so. Um, I, I think I think the the what everyone talks about today is uh, it's 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 even overplayed, and and we've seen a progression of it. But you know, it's it's how CGI change things. It's, it's very ironic that uh, at the time that practical makeup effects was at its zenith, it was ultimately uh, uh, kicked to the curb, so to speak, with the uh, invention of CGI. And uh, the more CGI became prevalent, the cheaper it got, the more easy it was for filmmakers to rely on that as a crutch. And um, especially with uh, the amount of money that would be put in CGI that was not especially expensive, you could see the results were not satisfying. Mm. Um, but that's also what uh, upwards of two decades or three decades of, uh, of, of audiences got. And I think ultimately people got, uh, the pendulum has swung back or is in the process of swinging back where filmmakers are are keen on using practical effects, but using uh, CGI to sweeten it ever so slightly. Uh, I've I've had the 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 privilege of speaking to, you know, John John Carpenter in this film. I've spoken to Ridley Scott, Mike Doherty. They're they're all people who are very singled very much singled out when I say CGI terrible. What do you think? And they say, well, no CGI when used right is is just as effective a tool as practical effects. But it has to be used right, and it has to be used properly in the context. And uh, CGI is not the villain in this story. If CGI is used right, you don't even notice it. Um, and, uh, you know, you go to, say, J.J. Abrams going back with, you know, The Force Awakens and using puppets and practical effects instead of just CGI creatures. Uh, there was a tremendous appreciation and fan service uh, happening there because there's a whole generation that is watching these movies and reminiscing about the movies that they loved in the 80s. And practical effects is really what rears its head each and every time. So uh, I think it's nice that... Uh, filmmakers are recognizing that this is what audience want audience yeah, audiences want and that's tangible things but i I'll, I'll i'll finish by saying with superhero films avengers uh sci-fi films currently we're at a stage now where sometimes the, the they're so polished you even if it is a practical effect or an actual stunt it's hard to tell the difference now and because we're so trained to think that everything is cgi now uh, the appreciation is challenged because you can't quite tell whether or not you're, you're looking at something that's real on screen or that really happened on screen or not. So, you know, I think we still have a ways to go. I grew up in the VHS era. A lot of people did as well. From and I think a lot like like that. A lot of people had an older brother or or, or an older sister would bring home all different sorts of videos, and a lot of those were horror movies. And I remember when I got older. I could get my own video card. I used to go down to the to the local Video Easy or Blockbuster and get my own stuff. And the horror section was the first place that I went to. And mm. um, I think it was really interesting that at that time, filmmakers who previous to that, the only place you can show your films was in cinemas. Now they have a totally different distribution model. They also have a totally different audience that sees their films in a different way. 
all of a sudden your film, which used to be on this really big screen, is on a really small one. And I'm curious, in your research and talking to directors, did that change whatsoever the way that they made movies? Transitioning from films that not only were seen in big and small screens, the way they would approach, I don't know, cinematography, um, makeup, we were just talking about that as well. Um, Did that change things whatsoever in regards to filmmaking style when um, catering to a specific sort of medium? Or sort of transition of uh, technology, sorry? I, I would say that uh, one, there, it's been a challenge for filmmakers. Uh, some have embraced sort of the digital realm, others have not, uh, or they fought it a little more. Um, you can see the seams more easily when it's HD, when it's 4K, when it's you know 6K, when it's 20K. You know that we're you know it's just going to keep on. The, it's going to soon. We're just going to be interacting with holograms. It's going to happen sooner than you think, but ultimately. The filmmakers creating the content, the content is king, the story is the most important thing, and that's really what they rely on. And I don't think they really change things uh, to uh, reflect the format. If anything, I think they, they, they've had to rally more to get people to watch things on the big screen, because not only is it a larger image, but it's a communal experience. And uh, a lot of these films, uh, it's important, especially... I would argue comedy, most importantly. It's important to have a a communal experience where everyone is laughing together at the screen. It's a funnier film when everyone's laughing. You know, when you're at home, even if it's a hysterical film, it's just not as funny. It's a different experience. Um, So I would just say, uh, like I said, the sort of this HD element is, is probably the thing that you need to filmmaker filmmakers are focusing on even more because you used to be able to get away with certain things because you couldn't pause it you couldn't uh zoom in on it you know you could you could it would go by fast enough where with sleight of hand uh they can create an illusion but now it's a different uh it's a different animal when your people are viewing and creating memes and uh and and getting to see things over and over and over um but ultimately whether it's a, a streaming content whether it's on your big screen TV at home or you're watching on your phone, um, it, it comes down to storytelling is the most important thing. And, and everyone I've spoken to uh, concurs with that. Final question. Um, considering the setting of these films, we're talking about the 80s, uh, especially in the time of uh, American politics, you had uh, Ronald Reagan being president. Um, you also had this interesting thing as well where when it came to censorship and ratings, um, so I, I'm a big heavy metal fan, and I kind of see heavy metal as kind of like the equivalent of the music genre rise to what the horror movie is. It's kind of like this genre of music that kind of can be mainstream most of the time, but most of the time it's kind of like an underground thing, kind of like what horror movies are. And at that mm-hmm. time you had the PMRC, who was really trying to censor heavy metal musicians in particular. Um, mm-hmm. And these days if I find that censorship doesn't so much come any anymore or not to the largest extent that these government bodies did but censorship seems to come from the audience um especially if you look at social media you're going through a certain kind of um, cancer culture kind of thing now films like say the joker that are coming out there are even film critics saying that this film should not be made the word dangerous etc is being lobbied about and i can't help but think of back in the 80s that a lot of films that came out were also hit with that sort of thing um, what do you think about this evolution of censorship coming from on one in one era 
more of a government driven thing but these days it's coming from the people themselves and the gatekeepers of that the entertainment journalists and the film critics some of them also kind of joining in on the mob and saying that there should be some films that should or should not be seen well you know it, it, it's a very complicated uh complicated scenario uh you look at contemporary times you look at the joker um I think that film could easily have existed 20, 30 years ago, and the reaction would have been very different. But this, we're, we live very much in a gun culture now, uh, and we live in a very uh, trigger-happy uh, response culture as well. And so while I don't believe in censorship in any way, shape, or form, I think there are certain ways that you can position a film uh, or release a film or talk about a film uh, that needs to be responsible. Uh, that needs to be uh, uh, there, there needs to be caretakers of these things so uh, the people who see them see them uh, for what they are as a reflective entertainment uh, and not an instructional uh, tool uh, and I think that's why people are afraid and, and, and you can't deny that a movie like The Joker uh, reflects a very troubling time that we're living in right now so I think I think it's it, it, if if a government isn't going to step in and censor, which I don't believe it should. I do believe that uh, the, the 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 village that we live in, the online village, the the, the global community village, uh, has to take responsibility not to censor the movies like The Joker, but to to uh, to put them on a be careful not to put them on a a, a glorified platform. Um, they need to. They need to be. Um, you really need. You really need to point out why that this is a a, a very critical uh, uh, take, but not necessarily an irresponsible one. Back in the eighties, uh, it was a different story. There was sort of a, a more of a, a response at the way that you know the, the Reaganomics element of uh, that was trickle down economics. All the things that you know, I could I could throw. Reagan buzzwords your way all day long, but ultimately it came down to there was sort of a, a snapback from the, the, the freedom that was found in the 60s and the 70s. And, um, you know, Alex Winter uh, says, I think, I think he says it best in our film, you know, it's like the, the, the grown-ups wanted to take the wheel back mm. and control things. While, you know, the 80s was really uh, a decade of excess, it also became uh, a symbol of... of of upper crust corporate greed and Wall Street greed is good was uh, reflected not as a negative thing but as a positive thing for a me 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 generation that was taking over. Um, you know, John Carpenter responded to that with "They Live" because he was sickened by what he was seeing. Um, but I think also there was a whole underground movement with this whole element of uh, the, the home video revolution. Is that? Uh, Filmmakers could still say anything that they wanted and tell original stories, whether you were David Cronenberg or, you know, with Videodrome or Frank Henenlotter with uh, Basket Case. You could still say anything you wanted and you could be as gross as you wanted. But if you wanted theatrical distribution, you had to be careful because the MPAA would give you an X, not for sex, but for violence. And, uh, you know, Mark Showstrom. And uh, Greg Nicotero, the two guys, effects guys, talking about that specifically, uh, they would they would ultimately have to um, they would have to curtail the filmmakers who wanted to do uh, be as creative as possible 
they'd say, listen, you got to take different avenues if you want to recoup your investment. By Blood's got to be black or green or blue because if it's red, it's going to get an X, you know, or if it's not cartoonish, it's going to get an X. So uh, they were, there were ratings that you still had to contend with during that time. But uh, last I'll say about it is that uh, – there was still the whole grindhouse movement going on in the, in the 70s and the early 80s, where uh, a lot of these films, if they didn't hit your local multiplex, you know, that the family could see, you know, Basket Case, uh, it would be playing in Times Square. It would be playing at your local grindhouse. And you could still see these midnight movies of, you know, Dawn of the Dead and Day of the Dead and Romero films. And it was out there if you wanted to get to it. And there really was no censorship. And I don't believe there ever should be. It just needs to be responsible uh, um, responses to the material that does come out. So for everyone listening, In Search of Darkness, available for pre-order now. You can go to 80shorrordoc.com. Um, so there's different kind of op- um, different type of options of um, packaging you can get. There's different type of things you can get. There's posters. There's movie pins. You can get a digital download. So many cool things that come with this documentary, including the documentary itself. I highly recommend this film. You know, David, I'm writing down in my review now that this is a movie that not only horror fans would really enjoy, but horror novices as well, because I think it's a really kind of great encyclopedic kind of introduction to this era in particular of horror filmmaking. And what's really cool about your documentary too is that you you bring up films of past as well. There's mentions to films like Dawn of the Dead with Tom Savini's um, role in there. Um, Exorcist talk about Dick Smith stuff in there as well. So it's such a, a great documentary and I think you and I can talk all day about this unfortunately. <laughs> we don't have that time but I do want to say thank you for the time you have given me today and congratulations to you with the documentary. Yeah, thank you so much. You know, you know. Ultimately, at the end of the day, when you see this film, it's meant to be a, uh, a big nostalgia trip, and it, hopefully, it inspires you to revisit your favorites and discover brand new ones, and uh, you know, share your love of horror and uh, let people know that horror doesn't necessarily have to be horrific. It could be definitely entertaining for the uninitiated. That's excellent. Thank you very much, David, for your time. Hopefully, you and I can talk again in the future in regards to any future projects you have. Thank you so much for having me on, Matt. I do appreciate it.